The Tablet Show, Episode 120, with guest Tony Surma. Recorded live Tuesday, January 14th, 2014. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Tony Surma about his experiences building mobile and tablet applications for disaster relief organizations. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support, online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, San Diego! It's The Tablet Show! It's awesome. Uh, we are surrounded by air and space. Yes, we are in, and we really got it all of the above. We're in the atrium at the Air and Space Museum in San Diego. Yep. And right in the center of the room is a model of a, a Mercury capsule. This must be heaven for you. I'm in a happy place, man. I'm very comfortable. Because uh, you love this stuff. Over here on the left here, this PBY Catalina. Do you remember that airplane that we were talking about with Scott Stanfield from his photo? Well, he took a photo of himself with the Golden Gate Bridge, Bridge. in the background. And there was this little plane flying and Richard identified it. And it was one of those. It was a PBY Catalina. It's not that little. It's a big airplane. Well, it was a little in the photo. Oh, yeah. It's a detail. It looked like a fly. And Richard's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. How do you know that? Oh, I was like, and on the right is, this is a Ford Tri-Motor. Uh, Are you going to give tours later? I could this give a tour. That, that, that helicopter over there, that's an AH-1E model. And what was that plane that just flew overhead that we uh, It was an airplane. Uh, Couldn't identify that one by the jets. Two and three quarter inch uh, uh, rockets on the side, and those are Tau missiles on the outside wings, and a 23 millimeter cannon. Wow. Uh, and the two on the back, actually, I think are the most interesting things in here, because that F-4 over there is actually one of Randy Cunningham's F-4s. Cunningham was the only uh, Vietnam ace on the American side, and he figured out how to shoot down those MiG-17s. You can see the MiG-17 right there as well. Uh, MiG-17, much more maneuverable aircraft. Very Is he a nimble. congressman? Uh, he, yeah, he did end and up. There was some controversy there. Yeah, there something. was some controversy around here, but he's a heck of a, of a Navy pilot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's one of his planes. I don't know if the MiG 17 is real, yeah. but you can see the difference between the two aircraft. Sure. That, that F 4 was built. My favorite line from describing the F 4 is the F 4 is proof that if you strap big enough engines to a brick, it'll fly too. <laughs> But that aircraft was built to shoot down Soviet nuclear bombers. Right. So it was built to go very, very fast in a straight line and launch long-range missiles to shoot down bad guys. And then they took it to Vietnam and had to fight little nimble fighters like that MiG-17. And, uh, and what Cunningham figured out is that what that plane was actually good at, it was maneuvering in the vertical. So he would never get into a turning fight with a MiG-17. He would go up, and the 17 would try to follow him, and he couldn't follow him because he could go up That's way awesome. better. Now, the, the, this is the, that was the better know framework, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you just missed it if you weren't paying attention. Um, there's also a replica of the Spirit of St. Louis out front, yes. which you pointed out to the uh, much to everybody's disappointment. It is a replica. Well, the real one's in the Smithsonian. In the Smithsonian. There are a number of replicas, although apparently that is a flying replica. Really? Yeah, that that will actually fly. Hmm. And but the Apollo Eight capsule is real. That is the capsule that went wow. uh, and orbited. Very cool. It's a big deal. This is a fun place, one of my favorite places. I bet. Are you going to get a chance to walk around later? You think? I guess that's up to us, isn't it? I think you should. Whenever we get finished. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's roll the music for Better Know Framework. Better Know Framework. <laughs> 
So, buddy, what do you got? Well, uh, this isn't exactly news, but we haven't talked about it on the show. Oh. So, Xbox One has an indie program. Oh, yeah, right. Now, this is a way that Joe Programmer or Josephine Programmer mm-hmm. can write games and get something on the Xbox One. That's pretty cool. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash Xbox One Indie, and that's Xbox O-N-E-I-N-D-I-E, that brings you to uh, xbox.com where you, you see the ID at Xbox, independent developer program for Xbox One. Apparently, this is a, a way that you can easily download all the tools for free. Nice. And uh, start developing on a PC deploy to the store, test. I guess you're supposed to be able to have an Xbox One to test ultimately, but I'm not sure exactly how that works. Yeah. You know, maybe somebody can call in and let us know, but... uh, It sounds like we got to do a show about this. We really should do a show about this because it's a lot of fun. And and exciting stuff. You know, uh, the big game houses aren't making original games these days. Right. They just keep making yet another first-person shooter, yet another another driving game. If you want to see an original game, it's going to come from an indie developer. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's good news. We have mentioned that fact on the show before, but we really should find the right people. I totally agree. Great find, buddy. There you go. Learn to love it. No, learn to love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off show 119, and that is the one we did with Phil Chapixi while we were on the road trip talking about Windows 8.1 development. And uh, this is a really interesting comment. Uh, this is from Kenneth Krieger Sorensen. So I'm betting Norwegian. Uh, I'm sorry, but I have to disagree with Mr. Jepixi in regards to Microsoft's decision to block developers' access to user documents folder when developing Windows 8 apps. I attended his Windows 8 development workshop in Orlando, and I heard the same argument back then. But well, then I th- what was Phil's argument? Let's just reiterate. Well, if, Phil was talking about the fact that you have to, you know, we were talking about learning to develop in Win 8, and one of the things you can't do in Win 8 is you cannot write from your app into the My Documents folder. Right. And which is frustrating if your app already does it. That'll break your app. If your app does that and then you move to eight one, all right. Now your app will break. And so this person says this is actually a good thing. Yes, this is a good thing. Okay, uh, because the user's document folder is for documents, not app specific settings. I want to keep my own personal structure inside my documents folders. And thank goodness that I keep my documents in SkyDrive, which means I get to decide the structure because my documents folder on my machine in my local user profile now has 14 different app-specific folders as of right now. I'm sorry, but to me, that's just wrong. Hmm. So to all my fellow developers, I say, please don't pollute my or any other user's documents folder. Yeah. We've got so many other options available, and thanks for the great show. Okay. Uh, Ken, I'm with you. And I don't know that Phil was necessarily advocating that you should do this. He was saying, if you're doing this and you move to 8.1, it's going to break your app. And I also think that he may have been talking in general about the user's directory, I mean, right. under which my document shows up. Yes. You can't touch anything under users is what I'm understanding. Well, there is an app settings folder that's there for is an this app stuff. Settings folder, yeah, that's right, supposed yeah. to be specific to the user. I mean, there's a right way to do yeah, this. And I, I think we're right. always battling this problem of what's convenient versus what's right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, uh, but good point. Either way. Very, very good point. Yeah. Kenneth, thank you so much for your comment. A tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to Diatom Enterprises. 
And that brings us to our guest, Tony Serma. He is the CTO of Microsoft's Disaster Response Program, which is responsible for the deployment of technologies to enable response organizations' critical relief efforts and connect communities affected by natural disasters throughout the world. Previously, Tony was the National Director for the Microsoft Technology Centers, where he, 10 years prior, was one of the original technical architects in the Chicago MTC. MTC? MTC. Stands for? Microsoft Technology Center. There you go. Of course it does. Prior to that, and I'm going to read right over that airplane, prior to that, he led software teams through the pain and, see, pain, it comes up, doesn't it? <laughs> through the pain and pleasure of building large-scale systems with C, C++, COM+, ASP, Delphi. Oh, there's so much pain in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to take a minute. <laughs> And eventually, .NET, ah, pain <laughs> relief. For many organizations, from large enterprises to .com startups, seemingly focused on spending funding. Now he spends nearly equal amounts of time in PowerPoint and Visual Studio at work and is always looking forward to volunteering his free time to help local nonprofits leverage angle brackets, semicolons, and command line switches. Tony Serma, give him a big hand. We talked a little bit about, in the intro on the road trip here, about the Humanitarian Toolbox. Just to give us an update. How's that going? Yeah, so we launched just over a year ago, I want to say. Yeah, a little we, more. It was out of the 2012 road trip, right? right? That's right. I think it was September of 2012. Yep. Uh -huh. And so we've done a number of hackathons, a number of conferences and such. And really the idea is we had this thought, can we build sort of a virtual software organization out of everyone's volunteer efforts? Lots of people like to show up at hackathons, like to contribute to humanitarian software projects, want to learn new technologies, want to do something different, but don't want to just sort of do that for the fun of it. Why don't you do that so it actually helps somebody? So that it's a real software project that really gets delivered. And so we thought if we can build that virtual software org over all those efforts, we could stop the problem we saw, which is lots of people build tools to help out in humanitarian crises, and then they just sit there. Yeah. They don't get maintained. They're running three versions old on Delphi, maybe right. something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so you have to think about, I can't deploy that, or the work it would take in the middle of a disaster to update it is more than it would take to just build it from start. So if instead we think about a virtual software org across all these volunteers, build it, maintain it, move it to new platforms, new devices, everything that comes out, whenever a disaster happens, a relief organization or the many relief organizations who are involved can just almost go to a wizard, if you will, right. say, you know what, I need to check in the volunteers and know their skill set. There's an app for that. Right. Download it, deploy it, and be able to use it. It also helps them because what we're finding is, like any organization, they're strapped for money and resources. They sure. shouldn't be building software that somebody else could build for them. Yeah. Sure. So how, how is it? What's the status of uh, Humanitarian Toolbox? Yep. So what's been great is we've gone from effectively zero projects and zero work to two of them so far. They're at already almost beta stage. Great. They've been built. They've been tested. They've been deployed on platforms. We're seeing that we can have folks do a, what's called a crisis check-in. So think of like four square for a disaster. You can, before you show up, you can say, I'm going to show up. Here's my skill set. Here's what I can do. Right. And so that when you're managing a disaster, you don't have a giant marker board with names. Mm. You have, you know, things like the web and other stuff to tell you that. 
We've got another one that's around mobile training because if you're a volunteer, you're probably not going to a disaster every week. So you need to know what are the skill sets, how do I use the satellite phone, whatever that is. So you can train about that ahead of time. And then we've got our, our website itself, the Humanitarian Toolbox website is an open source project. So we're building on that and we're starting a few more. We're hopefully going to expand at least double that number this year. So things are going really well. We've got a lot of community involved. That's fantastic. So you have a lot of experience now in the field with mobile apps on all these different platforms. And I guess that's what the topic of the show is about. And that is what, what we've learned from all of this, uh, you know, in terms of supporting all of these disparate apps on all these different platforms. Yep. You can think about, I mean, this is an obvious statement, but think about being in the middle of a disaster as an average day, only really, really bad. <laughs> and it's, it's obvious, but it makes sense. You think about it, you have to have a user interface that's very focused because you're very distracted in a disaster. Right. You are going online and offline very often, right? Towers are going down. But that's, again, the same thing we experience every day. I mean, if you try to use a cell phone inside of a house, outside of a house, next to a tree, on a convention center, on, underneath <laughs> an amphibious airplane, you know, yeah. there's many ways in which you're going to have a bad signal. So I imagine also battery life is really important and battery charging. I mean, I guess you can take one of those big chargers like that half thor had last night i don't know if the you big saw that brick. Yeah. but yeah you could charge a prius with this thing <laughs> and i mean that's sort of the easy way out but do you look for operating systems and platforms that do better with battery life do better with battery development tools that help you sort of track battery usage. Mm -hmm. um, again, another obvious statement is the more you use your phone, the more the battery goes down faster. Yeah. And so we also have to think about how do you communicate from an application point of view so you're not making constant pings to a server and driving right. down the battery quicker. And yeah. eating up what little bandwidth you have. Right. And that's another thing, right? You have bandwidth that's very variable. You need to think about compression and such. And sure. so we talk a lot about the connectivity side of things and, and how to optimize your code and how to do that across platforms because we don't just want things to work well on one platform or another. We need these apps to work across platforms and do that very well. Yeah. So do you have any sort of success stories of things that you, you know, do's and don'ts that you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. I, it, what we'll focus on probably for this talk will be more around the connectivity handling because that's where a lot more of the code yeah. and the thinking comes in. Um, but before we get to that, just some quick do's and don'ts. I mean, you know, turn off, go into airplane mode and try your application. It's amazing oh. how many developers, I'm not sure, did that. Wow. Because um, you get on an airplane, you turn it off or take off, and guess what? That app doesn't work, or it takes three minutes for the first page to come up. Or an unhandled exception blows it away or exactly. something. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's simple little obvious stuff like that. The other thing is think about um, device redundancy. If you lost your phone and you needed a replacement, um, could I use something like Azure Mobile Services or something where I can store some of the data up in the cloud? This is what I was saying before. Keep the state in the cloud. You get that omnipresence. You know, Right. And we also talk about, we've seen for volunteers, sometimes they make apps where you can log in as another user, which isn't a normal thought on a phone. Right. right. But I might need to go in as someone's manager to do something because their phone, you know, I don't know, fell down in an earthquake or something like right. that. Yeah, they, you know, it's surprising how even in the most sophisticated of appliances and applications, you see dumbness in software. The rental car that we picked up today. <laughs> tell the story of trying to sync. It, well, I can tell the story. Yeah. Richard spent, I don't know how much time you spent, but minute, way more minutes than you, you, you were would able think. to go shopping and come back <laughs> yeah. while I connected Bluetooth to my phone. And, and here's what it was doing it was saying, looking for phones that it had previously connected to. What? 
Why? So it had a list in its state bag somewhere, in its cache, and it was going to try those first. Yeah, until all of those were done. Then it said, did you want to add a new phone? What? (laughs) In a rental, even. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. There was a comic I saw once, it might have been The Oatmeal, where it talked about the difference between an internet connection that doesn't work at all and one that sort of works. (laughs) The, when it doesn't work at all, you go, oh, I'll go make a sandwich. I'll go do something else. Right. When it sort of works, you try and you try different yeah. things and you turn off your phone and you turn it back on and you think maybe it's faster now. And then the streaming kicks up just a little bit faster and gives you that sense of promise. Yeah. And then it goes away. So it's much worse when it sort of works yeah. than just stop working. Right. And so we talked about we'll focus on the connectivity side of things. We think about connectivity, we, we look at sort of almost a spectrum. The first is how you handle connections. Mm-hmm. There's a lot we can talk about there, both in terms of timeouts and how many connections you make. The next one is minimizing the data that's transferred. So that's anything as simple as just turning on compression to thinking about how many trips as well as how much data. And uh, especially most systems now talk to a lot of third-party services. Sure. Um, there's an example, if you look at what you actually get back in JSON from a single tweet from Twitter, I can't show this on the radio, but it's a lot. <laughs> it's something like 155K or something of metadata and all wow. this information. And you're only allowed to send them 140 characters in the first place. Exactly. What's up with that? So if instead maybe you have a service that parses that down to just the bits you need, you could go from 150K to, you know, what, 1 or 2K? And that's a huge difference there, especially if you're streaming tweets. So we talk about the amount of data we send. And then the last one, which is a little more complicated, is thinking about using SMS or text messages. Um, the two points there is that any phone, smart or otherwise, can, can receive and send text messages. So you get a broader audience you can work with. And then the last point with that, which is actually really key, is if you think about the radio stacks and how things communicate with the tower, SMS is about the lowest level of power and data and sort of tower strength that's needed. So often you can't make a voice call, but maybe you can make data. And when you can't make data, you can still get a text message through. Right. Wow. This episode of The Tablet Show is brought to you by Telerik Icinium, which enables you to develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript. And the best part is Icinium lets you do all of this from within Visual Studio, including comprehensive backend as a service in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI as well as jQuery Mobile, and integrated testing and deployment capabilities. That makes Icinium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icinium, with its Visual Studio extension, is available on a subscription basis and part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icinium with support at icinium.com slash DNR. That's I-C-E-N-I-U-M dot com slash DNR. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks and the Tablet Show. Didn't you work on an app, or weren't you involved with an app that, it's not part of Humanitarian Toolbox, but it was involved with Microsoft, that was all about using text messages as sort of a notification hub to send out notifications? Yeah, so we have an application that's free across all three platforms, iOS, Android, and Windows Phone, and it's called HelpBridge. And the idea is, is that in a disaster, you kind of need to broadcast and communicate out to those who are, you know, your friends and family. So you either want to let them know you're okay, because somebody's going to worry about you, your mom or whomever, as well as you might want to 
let them know you need help. Now, obviously, if you need 911 help, you call 911. But right. maybe you need to let some friends know that you can't go pick up your kids because of an accident, an everyday disaster. Mm. Um, or there's a bigger one, you need a generator or such. And so it's the idea of almost being a personal broadcast mechanism. And what it does is it tries to reach the server and publish out on social media or send emails from the server. And if that doesn't work, or for contacts that are only SMS of yours, it does the actual sending of the SMS off the device. And that's exactly for that reason, so that if the towers are down and all you can do is send SMS, at least you can get that message out. Now, are you guys using a third-party service like Twilio or something for that, or are you do sort of rolling your own native stuff? So, And that's the trick around we want to send it from the phone. So we're not using a third-party service in the cloud because we're not sending the text message from Azure or something like but that. You don't have we're sending app, it from the phone. But do you have an app that sends the message? using the native API then? Yeah, so our right. app on the phone uses the native API, brings up the screen for the user, they hit send, and it goes off. Gotcha. And the main thing there is so the fewest number of bytes coming out of the endangered area in the, in the restricted phone going to a hub hopefully in a place that has lots of bandwidth so then it can rebroadcast on all those other mediums. Exactly. And that's something we saw even during, say, a man-made uh, situation like the Boston Marathon bombings was there was a lot of push out there to don't call, don't use your phone for voice, but data was working. So even using um, Skype and other solutions like that on your phone was less of a load on the towers than the voice because they wanted to stay that open for emergency. Right. What if you have a situation where not even texting works because there's no cell service and you want to send those messages messages and get them in a queue and then go somewhere when it comes in because if, it, if it's like my phone it says can't send that try again but if you've got you know five six seven ten twenty hundred messages to send that's a lot of retries to do is there any app that can sort of queue those up yeah so um what we found is that you want to deal with the connection going down like you said cash cache, whatever it is you want to send, sort of a store and forward mechanism. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things about mobile devices and, and, and tablets and, and phones is the OS in there has a lot of restrictions. So whereas on, say, straight Windows, you could have a Windows service that's running in the background and uh, is always watching connections and, and, and sends the messages off, right. you, it's, your app's lifetime is only when you're running it different platforms. You can do background agents and other things. So what we found is you want to use something inside the app, store it locally, use a background agent, which Windows Phone and others have an API where maybe every 30 minutes or such, it comes up, yeah. sees it as network connectivity and send them off. The challenge with that is, is store and forward and message bus programming. It's, it's kind of messy and it's a lot of infrastructure. Well, you know, I suppose if you had an offline texting app where you could, you know, have the same kind of UI as your text thing and allow access to your contact list, then you could put them into that thing, which would then, when you have, you know, a sort, make a sort of a buffer app, I yep. suppose that's an easy one to write. Yeah, the, the other thing we did is, and we did this in a demo for when we did a presentation like this at a conference is, um, there's an open source tool called, I never know how to pronounce this, Akavash by Paul Betts. And it's a cross-platform, works with Xamarin, PCL, all of that. And it's a, it's a local cache. Mm -hmm. And all it's meant to do is when I grab data, store it locally. So it's great for caching. But we had a little proof of concept that said, if what I did was every time I went to send a message, I put it in an object, stored it in the local cache, okay. and you can key off the type. So you have, you know, my message or whatever is the type. Mm. Then you can have your background agent look in my local cache see if I have any of those messages to send, and then pick them up, send them off, and every time they're successful, remove them from the cache. Mm. So it's a great little sample of code where you don't have to start using MSMQ or SQL replication or anything very fancy and get a store and forward mechanism that works quite well. 
Uh, very cool, very cool. And when you actually built those apps for all those different devices, did you just build them all natively? So to the point where you want to have a UX that's focused, we need the, the user interface to be native to each right. platform. You know, if someone's an iOS user, I want them to understand how this app works. Sure. And so um, when we built the HelpBridge app for Microsoft, we built them natively on each platform. This okay. was, uh, let's say, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, what we've been doing now, both for the humanitarian toolbox, some of our community efforts, is uh, leveraging Xamarin mm -hmm. and using C Sharp, .NET, the portable class libraries, the PCLs, the things that, that we know how to use well, so that we can create those things like that store and forward cache, et cetera, yeah, et cetera, right. build them once and then use it across the different platforms. Right. But with that, we're still able to deliver a offline native user experience. And that's, that's been key. What we did before, as I said, as we did for multiple platforms, we just found we were writing the same code again and again. We were doing the testing. We'd find a bug in the iOS version, and guess what? It was in the Android version, but sort of kind of different. Right. And so the testing effort and the coding effort and the fixing effort was much higher. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, well you, so you guys out. were actually developing them in parallel. You didn't, like, finish the iOS app and then build the Android app. Yeah. So we did them in parallel around uh, reaching a certain deadline. Right. Yeah. And then same thing with testing. We did testing in parallel. And as you can imagine, I happen to work for Microsoft. Most of the people we gave the app to test to were very familiar with Windows Phone, so yes. they found lots of bugs in there. And not everybody had iOS and Android, so we had to work to get a good community to find bugs in there as well. Yeah. And about what was your average sort of uh, cycle for building an app, you know, in terms of start to finish for, for first rev? Yeah, I'm trying to remember for that one. I want to say we, we had a good number of folks who were working on it, and we had a tight deadline. Um, and I want to say it was probably we did it in parallel, and it was probably about a month or two from start to finish and then a little bit more for testing. So Pretty it wasn't impressive. bad, but we had a lot of folks on it. The other thing is we tried to, and again, that focused UX thought is we want to be very focused on what the app does and doesn't do. Because if you're literally shaking from an earthquake and you're yeah. trying to tell your mom you're okay, you don't want to be like dismissing dialogue if boxes. If you're still shaking, I don't think stuff. you know you're okay. <laughs> 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 but I get, you know, in the trauma of, right. of an event to try and operate your phone, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Right. And same thing happens with the volunteers from the relief organizations. Sure. They're probably using an app they haven't used in a while. They're humans too, right? So even though they may have a lot of experience in this, they're in the middle of a humanitarian situation, which usually isn't very emotionally positive. Right. And so being able to, to just do what they need to do and get off there and helping somebody else is, is very important. Yeah. Now, when you say there was a lot of people on the team, this is a virtual team sort of spread out, or was this over hackathons or over... How, how exactly were these apps built? So when we did HelpBridge from the Microsoft side of things, that was both folks on, on my team, um, some folks from citizenship as well, some vendor resources that were okay. helping build it, so spread out. When we've done these other mobile apps, we've been focused on, like with the Humanitarian Toolbox, doing it across hackathons, volunteers, folks that are doing work in between the hackathons. So they're taking a weekend, they're finding a bug. They're, you know, downloading code, fixing it, and uploading it. Yeah. And that's been another advantage where we can get folks that have a, a strong skill set in C Sharp, .NET, things that we tap into with the Microsoft developers, right. and then they can use that across multiple platforms. So have you thought, have you had a virtual hackathon where everybody gets together by link or Skype or whatever and just sort of pounds on a, a certain problem? Yeah, so when we think about Humanitarian Toolbox in 2014, sort of one of our keys is we want to we have the hackathon sort of live beyond the physical state, and we've right. got a little bit of that. Um, we want to create a sense of maybe a hackathon that's a month long, right? So you can kind of log in, do what you're doing, come off, but everybody's working off the same project to drive that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of like the idea of people getting together at a certain time, yeah. sort of being in that immediate that immediacy of, all right, I'll check that in. Oh, you got that. I'll take that guy and pass it over to you. You know, that sort of interactivity. I really like that, you know, working with a team. But if, if you're not in the same place. Right. And and so we find that that it's it's not so much peer pressure as much as it is the positive effect of Absolutely. somebody else is working, somebody else is doing it. Yeah. I'm not the only one sitting at a computer working right now. Yeah. And so that that's definitely a good model. The other thing we've learned is it's very important for us to take the needs from the nonprofits and break them down. Yeah. Because I don't want to say just build an app to help people check into a disaster. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's not very user-friendly, if you will, to step up and, and sure. contribute. But if we can break that down to different requirements, different platforms, different skill sets, then we find that it's easier to step up to. One of the things I've noticed uh, working with you and with, uh, with some of the others as well is that disaster relief pros aren't necessarily tech people either. They don't think no. about it the same way. We've had all of the same challenges in, in HT around maturing a set of requirements, really breaking that down with the B. And, it, and we get spoiled. Like, working with you is pretty easy. You've been in tech a long time. When we talk through requirements, we talk the same way. Right. But we go outside that to guys who are working in the field in these disasters, and that's just not how they think. We, get, we have to go back and, and work through, really mature those requirements. I know there's several requirements set sitting in the, in the HT repository right now. It's like every one of these is going to need a leader to go back and talk to that professional and sort of mature them into something that developers can really start working on. Yeah, you're right. It definitely sort of stretches that requirements gathering skill set because when you're a disaster volunteer, not only you're not techie, but you're really focused on the end goal, the result, yep. helping somebody moving to the next house, whatever that is. So you will very quickly find that they're, I'd say, allergic to complexity. Yep. Hmm. And so the solutions that they want and need, if they perform not as easily as a piece of paper, they're yep. going to use a piece of paper. Yep. And guess what? That tends to work. Yep. It also has an easy offline mode. Yeah. It never goes down. <laughs> it doesn't have to be rebooted for a Windows update in the middle of Completely using it. Completely random access. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The resolution is excellent, <laughs> excellent too. Resolution. It's got a nice archive feature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, or you use a marker board, guess what? Everyone can see it. Yeah. You know, so there's just a lot of simplicity and a lot of ease of use there. And so it, it forces you to really think about the requirements of what's the minimal thing that they need to do it. That really provides them an advantage. Right. It's got to be better than paper. Right. And because of things like connections going on and offline, et cetera, et cetera, just being on a computer isn't that advantage. Right. One thing I've noticed about these apps in looking at them is they tend to not necessarily be, you know, uh, really intensely cutting edge in terms of, you know, the latest technologies and stuff. They tend to be using the stuff that everybody is using in apps, but just repurposed for exactly the specific need, like like the the check-in service, right? Yeah, Foursquare for disaster relief professionals. There already exists a Foursquare app, but are you really going to find, you know, within f the Foursquare thing, you know, uh, YouTube, right? We can't really use YouTube for videos for specific, you know, yeah, getting people up to speed because it's too general. So right. we have to have these sort of specialized versions of apps that are already out there. Right. It's, it's the requirements, like we're talking about the complexity of the situation, the fact that you have a lot of different volunteers who aren't doing this as a full-time job, yeah. may, maybe or maybe do not have formal training in your app, and certainly if you have a long run-up, that's not, that's not good. Mm. The other thing is, is that they're very much burst mode, right? You know, if you think about the response to a, a hurricane or an earthquake, it isn't something that's done slowly over 52 weeks. 
It's something that's done a whole lot in a weekend, and then in a week, and then in a month, and then it slowly tapers off. So there's a there's a sort of a cloud burst mode, if you will, that doesn't normally happen in a lot of applications. But there's a lesson in that design, though, for for us building mobile apps in our businesses as well, which is we don't have to have the coolest, you know, right. we don't have to reinvent the wheel when we make a mobile app. We can take the best of breed of the apps that are popular out there already, repurpose them for our for our brand and for our for what we're doing, and come up with you know our own Frankenstein of uh, of uh, of an app. Yeah, it's, it's really think about what's the specific value and the differentiator that you're bringing with this app. Right. And especially because there's sort of zero friction from uninstalling your app and installing the next one that comes along. Right. There's got to be that value. There's got to be a specific use case you're solving for them, and you're doing it better than something else. Yep. Because we now have so many choices for every possible use we'd want on our phone or our tablet. And having all that stuff in the same context with the same data set, right. essentially. Right, and with the same state that's shared in the cloud across devices and right. all those things that are going to bring value versus sort of a, a flashy UI or something that might catch an eye but isn't going to keep someone engaged. Right. Yeah, very good. Yeah, it's in, interesting times. The uh, And I guess the other piece of this that I, we haven't really got to talk to, we always talk about phones, but what about tablets in these scenarios? Because I, I think you get, that's more computing horsepower and certainly more screen real estate. In some ways, I think it would be an even more useful device out in the field. Absolutely, because if you think about if you're a disaster response worker, you are really sort of the field information worker. So you might have a, a list of addresses you need to go check on folks who might live alone and to see if they're okay. Right. Yeah. You might also have a situation where you're, you're going and you're gathering data, right? I want to find out, you know, is this hospital okay? And, and that's actually very vague, so I should be specific. Does this hospital have power? Does Meet it have this? Does it have this capability? And so you're going to be filling out forms. You're going to be gathering information. And you can certainly do that on a phone, but on a tablet, you both have the power so you can implement a better sort of offline and, and store and forward mechanism. Right. And you also have more screen real estate so that I can have a better form. I can have a, a better set of information that I gather. We also find that um, you want to be able to hand that off and have the actual citizen or the individual be able to fill out the form. Right. And so when you're using a tablet, not only does more screen real estate appear, but you have the ability to show stuff in a, in a more easy to use format. You know, if on a phone, you got to get a lot on a little bit, but I can show the form here. I can have multiple pages. I can make yeah. things much easier to use. So tablets really across all the platforms are a big thing to deploy. The other benefit they have is they have more battery. Right. Granted, they tend to use mm -hmm. a little bit more, but mm -hmm. they have a lot more battery. And so they will last a lot longer. And there's also much more sort of rugged form factors in tablets sure. as well. We do talk about days of usage in a tablet. And you're lucky if you get a day of usage out of a phone. Right. Especially when you're, you're using it, right? You're, yeah. you're entering information, you're saving information, you're communicating up. It turns out phones use the most battery when you're either using them or making phone calls. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the irony is, is that on a tablet, you don't have that phone call side of things. So in some cases, it's actually better to take the use cases and split them across devices. Hmm. You'd think you'd want only one with one battery, to our point about charging. Mm -hmm. But if I have one that's used for voice... And when I'm not using voice, I'm using this one for data entry. One isn't sort of taking away from the other's battery. Sure. Is there a holy grail for disaster relief apps that hasn't been written yet? I'm sure there is. I'm sure just like every industry, there's sort of that last application ever. But in your if mind? We can build that. I think in my mind, what it really comes down to is creating sort of a set of a couple of apps. Um, one is being able to know who's where and what they're doing. 
not just the check-in we talked about, yeah. knowing about who's coming, but knowing if, pretend this room was a situation, where is everybody in the room and what is it they're working not on? Not just the relief workers, but the victims too. Exactly. And then the, the value that would be layered on top of that is almost think of it as like a stock exchange for transactional data about a disaster. Because right now, when I find out that, Are you say, an economist by any chance? <laughs> no. Um, Just checking. But when I find out that, say, over in that corner, there's a gas leak and it's possibly an explosion risk, yeah. sending that as a PDF status report that you're going to read tomorrow, not, not very helpful. No. Much like if the Wall Street Journal printed stock prices two days later, not very helpful. But if I can know about that real time, if I can know there's a thing there and I know who, which of my people are there, I can pull them out. So there's a life safety benefit to that, but there's also a delivery of good benefit. If, say, um, six or seven relief organizations all provide the same kind of service, so I like, don't want them all going to the same area. You're talking like a triage priority kind of list. Yeah. Right. Sort of a real-time information yeah. sharing so I can know where the dangers are and where the needs are and allocate the resources appropriately wow. and not be doing it with, you know, tomorrow's PDF. Yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing if that could happen. Right. There's a lot of complication, a lot of sharing sure in that. Is. But what we're finding is more and more the cloud's being used in disaster because getting a connection to the internet, there's lots of ways to do that very mm -hmm. quickly. Getting a connection to that data center over there that got knocked out by an earthquake, that might take weeks. But getting one up to a cloud, to a data center somewhere else where we could be sharing that information, that capability is there. There's a lot of virtual satellite providers and others who can enable that. Are you looking at alternate forms of providing electricity for devices, uh, you know, solar electricity or, or any kind of fuel cells or anything? Yeah, definitely. There's, um, there's this, I forget who makes it, but there's the backpack with the... Uh, with the, the counterweight in it. Yeah, and there's, um, so there's that. What there's, is that, actually? So literally, as you're walking, it's shifting this weight through a coil and generating fields. So you're walking energy. So you can charge. charge your own, your phone and keep right. it charged while you're walking. Your kinetic yeah. energy is basically yeah. producing You just have to eat. That's yeah, all. That's it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You have to eat those protein bars, and then that turns into <laughs> electricity, and then you can play Angry Birds. So it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's pretty interesting, actually. There's I, that. Thought, there's, I haven't heard of those. There's ones that have solar panels on the backpack, and they're actually getting good enough now that the transfer of electricity is you can have a small area of photovoltaic and actually translate that to a battery in your backpack. And have that charge up a phone or a tablet. But how, how well does that charge? I mean, in how much sunlight, how many hours of sunlight is required to charge an iPhone, for example? So I don't know off the yeah. top of my head, but we're seeing it. It's a lot better. I had one of those backpacks 10 years ago. It mm -hmm. was cute, yeah. but it didn't really help me. <laughs> right. yeah. It was a conversation piece when I went through airport security, yeah. but it didn't really help uh, charging my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that one. <laughs> Um, but now we actually have them and you get a good battery in there like those bricks you were talking about. Yeah. It charges up. It stores it. Mm. You put it in the back of the rental car when the sun's baking on mm -hmm. it while you're sitting in doing something else. Actually works pretty well. That's I'm pretty impressed. neat. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, I guess one of the things for folks who've not actually been on a site, and I know you have, you've been in some of these sites, is that the idea that there is connectivity. That that stuff keeps functioning. I know dealing with hurricanes and things down in the Caribbean, it's like the one thing that still worked was the cell tower. Yeah, if what's interesting is exactly that. People assume that's not going to be there. Water needs a continuous pipe. So if a pipe gets broken, water doesn't get to right. you. Gas needs the same thing, and it causes explosions, so it's really bad. Um, electricity needs wires underground, above ground. All you need for connectivity is one tower that can connect to the next tower and eventually gets over to wherever the service provider is. Right. Or what we've seen, and we have partners, um, Cisco has their TAC Ops vehicle. Right. Um, British uh, Communications What's has that? one. I'm yeah, so, I was, so there's a number of our partners. 
who have these they look like an agent of shields van is what the cisco one looks like and it basically it's a has roving multiple, cell tower multiple it can put up a cell tower radio it can connect up to satellites for internet access huh. they can effectively drive it somewhere in order to put that connectivity up wow that's sort of a cool physical version of it there are literally backpack satellite uplinks you can put up and then you put up a wi-fi tower that'll give you a couple of miles circumference wi-fi hmm. now again you don't want everybody updating their facebook status on that it's yeah. <laughs> limited bandwidth but if you build your apps right the ability to communicate out to the cloud is is almost a given at this point. Wow. It's got to be one of those first responder kind of things. One of the first things you bring into a site is a little more connectivity mm. because it makes everybody else more effective. Yep. If you look at the UN and they have uh, the ETC cluster in this uh, group called emergency.lu, and what they do is they can get on a military transport, satellite uplink, some gear that's got uh, Skype and other solutions built into it. They can airlift that anywhere in the world within about 12 hours. And it's the coolest thing ever because, well, there's lots of things that are cool in disaster response. Mm -hmm. Not the actual disaster, of yeah, course. We I know. want to be clear. But we know you're not evil, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> no weather machine. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. funny. Like, we talked about having metrics for our business. And I'm like, well, we don't want a number of disasters because then the... <laughs> Anyways, the yeah. motivation would be to cause create, disasters. not create bad disaster exactly. incentives. But literally, if you think about it, you want to get a satellite dish up, and the hardest thing to do is find somewhere stable to do it. Right. So much like, uh, I don't know that this was their insight, but much like the Mars rover where they had the airbags, they basically have a satellite stand that's an airbag, a giant, giant airbag. So all they need is enough physical ground. They start filling it with air. It absorbs whatever imperfects there are in the, you know, the level and the slope and stuff, and it inflates and points a satellite dish up at the sky, connects some wires, and they've got internet access wow. anywhere in the world, 12 hours. And then some kids come around and think it's a moon bounce, and they jump on it, <laughs> satellite bounce. All right, so anyway. Uh, all right, so I'm a programmer who's recently laid off, and I'm sitting home listening to this and thinking, wow, I'd like to be a hero and get involved. This sounds like Tony is having too much fun. <laughs> what, can I, what can I do? So I think the best thing is go to um, Humanitarian Toolbox's website, which thankfully we have a new URL, which is htbox.org. It used to be humanitariantoolbox.org, and even I don't know how to spell Humanitarian Toolbox. <laughs> um, there's a lot of U's and M's involved in there. But go to htbox.org, and you'll see a link to GitHub, to what we have in TFS, um, a place to sign up to get some information and newsletter. But the easiest thing is, if you got the ability to contribute to a project, you're either a tester, a developer, or even a designer, go there, you'll see our projects, you'll see the current list of issues, you'll see something you can grab, contribute, kind of get started with a small piece, then get a bigger piece, and hopefully over time that person can even turn into a project lead and run one of these projects and carry something forward. And what we make sure we do is we track everybody who contributes. And the main reason we do that is so that when it actually gets deployed in a disaster, we can go back and say, do you remember that weekend you were at a hackathon or that, that uh, couple of weeks that you were offline and so you spent some time contributing to our projects? Your work on Project X got deployed for Disaster Y and actually helped people. Wow. We want to drive that recognition back because we think people are going to do this both because they're good volunteers and yeah. have that good sense. They're going to learn a technology maybe they don't know, mm -hmm. but they want to know more than anything their time was actually valuable. You don't want to work on a project with the promise it's going to be used, and then you find out it's never gone anywhere. It's sitting in a repo that's not being used. We want to show them that their, their work actually had a real humanitarian benefit. 
Wow. And, and these apps that are up on GitHub, there's enough information there so that I, I don't have to spend hours looking through source code to figure out what this is and what it does. There's yep. We broke down the requirements into issues. We yeah. have the bugs there. We have the contributing.md, so you can go up there Great. and see that. Great. Pull it down, work on it push something up there with pull request and, and begin to contribute. That sounds like, uh, you know, like I said, you, when, when I hung out with Jeff Palermo yep. uh, at their company, just, you know, four or five guys sitting around a table with some pizza and, you know, Skype with a lady who was uh, running the whole thing. Uh, it was fun, you know. They actually had fun and did use their brains and saved the world. And what's, what's most sort of self-motivating in the moment is, to those folks in the response organizations who are not technical, it's magic. It is. You're doing magic for yeah, them. Yeah, this person was completely blown away. You, you put that on the web? Oh, my God. That was in my Excel spreadsheet this morning, and now it's on the web? And so it's taking yeah. something more than just your ability to physically move some boxes or help out, which is good work, too. Yeah. But take the special sort of superpower this skills what that we you do. have yeah. and really add value. In a couple of hours, you could do something that, you know, from their point of view, could never get done. Because mere mortals uh, think we're magicians. And, you know, we are. Well, and you, you cite that particular project. She was getting ready to type, retype all of that stuff yep. in that Excel spreadsheet into right. a wiki. And, uh, and you automated it and got it done in the day. Humanitarian Road was yep. the name of that one. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great project. And I was just a bystander. I was just sort of watching watching the whole thing. But uh, it was fascinating to And me. it's a great experience. The, the team self-organized. Some people yep. got leadership. Some people got technical. Yep. Uh, they all got to see the results. They got to see the person on Skype, like yeah. you said, light yeah, yeah. up. And it's one of those things where it's just a few just hours it was a Saturday morning. Yep. And, and that was a little one. That right. was like a one-day thing. Right. Right? Yeah. You imagine what would happen with a bigger project, you know, where you're actually digging right. in. Right. And it gets used by every volunteer that shows up to yeah. a major international situation yeah. and helps thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are affected. Yeah. Great stuff, Tony. Let's give a big round of applause one more time to Tony Surma. And we'll see you next time on The Talent Show. Yeah.